Hello and welcome to the Hospice News Elevate podcast. My name is Jim Parker and I'm editor of Hospice News. I'm here with Dr. Timothy Erig, founder and CEO of Erig MD and Associates, an organization that strives to educate the medical community about the benefits and the, uh, the nuts and bolts of hospice and palliative care. He is internationally recognized for combining clinical and administrative experience the system designed around population health and management, care coordination, and care delivery for the most vulnerable patient populations. He's an expert in understanding risk as applied to healthcare contractual entities, micro and macro healthcare economics, population health, regulatory compliance from a systems perspective, and the interaction of all of those. His TED Talk, What We Can Do to Die Well urges doctors to emphasize overall quality of life when helping seriously ill patients approach the end of life with dignity and compassion. Tim, it's great to speak with you again. Thanks for being here. Well, it's always my pleasure to talk with you also. So I I wanted to start, you know, when we've spoken in the past, you've expressed some reservations about the Medicare Advantage hospice carve-in or the VBID demonstration. The program is, is about, you know, entering its second year. Could you kind of summarize your thoughts on the demonstration and what you've seen during year one? Has anything surprised you or changed your perspective? That's a big question. I'll offer I don't know that much more than I did this time last year. The paucity of information, metrics, data, pursuant to numbers, quality, individuals' perceptions, caregivers' perceptions, et cetera, is limited. Again, most of us in the industry um, really want to believe that it's going to be a catalyst for end of life quality, end of life care for more people. But our reservations are, you know, really stemmed with who is controlling the lever arms. And uh, I think it's, it's not the hospice industry. It's not true palliative care delivering organizations and physicians. It's Medicare Advantage, uh, which in and of itself, has been a very positive thing. If you look at the number of people, CMS individuals who are enrolled in an MA plan and the popularity of it, you know, that can't be questioned. We're still concerned that the success can be translated to quality, patient-centered end-of-life care, and that is yet to be seen. Thank you. And there's been... You know, a lot of kind of hand in hand with with that question, there's been a lot of discussion in the field about a rising need for palliative care and the potential for new avenues of reimbursement, including Medicare Advantage and uh, a Medicare benefit, a dedicated Medicare benefit that's been proposed by by stakeholders in the space, but but not by any agency at this point. Uh, What do you think is coming in terms of palliative care in the coming year? I hope a lot. You're spot on that there is a need for appropriate reimbursement. Uh, I think the very limited step, Jim, is we still exist in a fee-for-service world. And so healthcare medicine is set up to continue to do things to a disease or debility, to follow a linear algorithmic uh, ladder, if you will, of escalation of clinical intervention. As, as someone progresses through disease and debility. And there's not the opportunity, uh, there's not the paradigm to acknowledge 
and translate uh, inevitability when perhaps uh, an individual's capacity to heal or recover is not consistent with what we're doing to them. And that is the, you know, most vulnerable, most expensive sector of the, the population. And ironically, that's component of uh, attributable lives that most organizations are being held accountable from a uh, risk financial perspective. And so there's, you know, the paradox is here's a need uh, to incentivize financially the right type of care. One, you know, you know my perspective, to do uh, what's best and, and what's most sacred to the individual once they know the truth, you know, to provide them with the most options and, and pathways forward so they can live their lives. And when we do that, we know that it mitigates the, the downside financial risk of the organizations, the large payers and systems. So I, I think there's going to be, I hope there's going to be recognition that we need to support financially really high quality palliative care that translates you know, if it's consistent with the patient's goals and wishes to really high quality hospice care. Historically, to make the pitch <laughs> to the C-suite of, of a hospital system that, you know, you have to invest all this money now and it will pay off later from a risk-bearing model perspective, as well as it's the right thing to do, that, that's a much harder sell than it has been historically than building a cancer clinic or cardiology clinic where you really know what the uh, return on investment is going to be from a revenue stream as opposed to just cost avoidance uh, and penalty avoidance. So I think we're starting to see it. Uh, the teeth is being put into uh, what some of the, you know, stakeholders are, are beholden to as far as outcomes. There are financial penalties. I think we have to hit that ceiling or it really starts to hurt before they say, yeah, we're going to invest in it. And they put the pressure on to support you know, really good quality palliative care, different reimbursement models. Really verbose answer, I, I know, but there's a lot there's a lot going on in the space. And uh, have you seen demand rising for palliative care during the pandemic? Yes, very much so. Unfortunately, where I have stood, a majority of the demand has come way too late. And I think we can talk for a second about the pandemic in general and then get back to that question. We saw, you know, such a tremendous paucity of resources, intensive care units, you know, hospitals overrun, certainly early in the pandemic. If we look at the population that was filling those ICU beds, for, for the most part, they were advanced illness. They were people with progressive irreversible fatal diseases. So COVID was a catalyst and an accelerant for the progression of their physiologic decline. And I would make the argument that a majority of those people, it was a zero-sum game, the continuation of, of clinical escalation because they weren't going to recover. Their disease processes that were underlying their conditions prior to catching COVID you know, portended where they were headed. It's an iatrogenic resource failure that the system experienced. If we had had appropriate conversations upstream, a diagnosis with dementia, congestive heart failure, you know, widely metastatic cancers, et cetera, we could have empowered people to understand inevitability and potentially make different choices. 
as it stands, the system presently and what we experience in COVID, you know, the sicker you get, the more we do to you. Well, you're having trouble breathing. We've got to put this tube down your throat. The choice is tube or no tube, which when you're suffocating, doesn't look like much of a choice and, and you don't understand what's going on and all the ramifications of disease progression, et cetera. You, know, you had a disproportionate number of elderly ill end up on ventilators that were never going to come off them. So at that point, there is this screen for palliative care, come in, have conversations, not just for patients and families, but I've seen a lot of providers, intensive care unit physicians, pulmonologists, et cetera, struggling um, with this overwhelming uh, volume of critically ill and dying patients and emotionally they're taxed. They, they said, look, my skill set is X, Y, and Z. Yours is having conversations and translating this inevitability. I need help navigating these continual high pressure, highly emotive conversations, people who are dying. So there was, I think, born from this a recognition that palliative care is not a nice to have. Palliative care is, is an absolute necessity. Now we just need to push it further upstream so that people have a choice of dying at home or dying on a ventilator, which I don't think a lot of people have over the last couple of years. That's uh, that's really interesting. I wonder if, and I really hesitate to ever put any kind of silver lining on the pandemic, but do you think that given the uh, the scale of, you know, this outbreak and the way it, you know, really taxed uh, healthcare provider resources, do you think that, you know, physicians or, or throughout the clinical disciplines that they people learned to collaborate or coordinate their care a little bit better through this experience, just by necessity? Great question. I think there is a sense that everybody's playing a little nicer together in the sandbox. Mm -hmm. I can't necessarily ascribe a belief that it's going to move the needle significantly upstream. Again, it was a reactionary interaction rather than a proactive interaction. So instead of recognizing, Jim, you've been diagnosed with dementia, right? And it's a progressive irreversible fatal disease. And we can kind of map out the trajectory, not to be mean or curt or frightening, but really to empower you with this is what is likely to happen. And so how can we live our best lives? That didn't happen. I don't see that happening as a result of the pandemic because when the storm passes, we revert back to that which we know, that which we're comfortable with, that how we were trained. And we don't see with those eyes. We don't see inevitability. You know, it really gets down to as physicians, we are trained to recognize disease and ability and to do something to it. And if either increases, we do more to it. And that's that linear algorithmic clinical intervention ladder, we're not trained to acknowledge that death is not a failure. Death is a reality and will absolutely happen to everyone. We can't acknowledge it, so we don't accept it. 
they don't have a vernacular to talk about it or translate it or even recognize what the journey is going to lead to. So it tends to be a little more philosophical and esoteric, but it has direct clinical implications. If we can't translate appropriately earlier on what's going to happen, then we end up overrunning the ICUs because of a pandemic. And, uh, you know, we, we've talked in the past, uh, you, know, you know, you even just talked a few moments ago about some of the value-based initiatives that are going on, kind of turning back to that subject. Um, but do you think there are elements that need to change in regards to the traditional Medicare hospice benefit itself? It was established in the early 80s. Do you think it needs to be updated? <laughs> That's a bigger question than you've ever asked me. I do. I do. I, th- I think it it needs to come from a consortium of individuals and experts who have been in the industry a while. I struggle with personally and, and some colleagues that the hospice Medicare insurance benefit is not necessarily need based, but you know what is the timeline of mortality? Again, if two providers feel that someone is likely to die within six months given the natural trajectory of a, a disease or multiple disease processes, and they, for the most part, qualify for the hospice Medicare insurance benefit. A lot of people live a lot longer than six months. And while hospice is not definitively set as a finite, limited benefit, I think it precludes, in its present form, it precludes a lot of people who are on that trajectory you know, further upstream who I may look at and say, well, I don't think they're going to be dead in six months, but yeah, they could certainly use this type of care, which would do several things. One, increase the length of their life, right? We know that hospice um, increases life length. You know, it increases quality of life for most individuals and it decreases per capita expenditures. So if there are individuals who are given the choice Earlier on, you know, and again, this has to coincide with translating inevitability and having conversations and exploring what's sacred to people. If we have a mechanism that can deliver high-level care upstream of six months, I think that would be extremely beneficial for dementia patients, COPD patients, a lot of cancer patients. But now the only mechanism care that is available to them is this cyclic nature of clinical interventions, hospitalizations, potentially skilled facility, bouncing back here and there. And I would make the case in another podcast, you know, how that actually portends a shorter life expectancy because there's a point at which your body can't handle stress and we keep doing a whole bunch of stuff to you. It steals time from you. So yes, I think it needs to change. I think it needs a lot of people in the room to talk about it who are from the hospice side, who have changed urine-soaked sheets, who have walked this journey clinically and understand value-based, understand fee-for-service, understand current delivery mechanisms so that one can compare and contrast. It can't just be a lot of politicians, and it certainly cannot be payers uh, big systems. It's got to be providers included in that conversation. In 2021, last year, saw a lot of movement in terms of regulatory enforcement with the survey redesign, forthcoming special focus program, 
crackdowns on false claims and some other initiatives. Uh, do you see these moves having more of a positive effect on the industry or do you foresee any unintended consequences or excessive burden there? I'm taking a deep breath to think about how to answer that, Jim. You are full of really good questions today. I understand the intent that brought forth the new regulatory uh, mechanisms and, and everything the industry is dealing with, uh, not just last year, but over the last you know decade. And I think there's value in holding individuals and organizations and industries accountable because, you know, the history of business of the world is there are going to be some, some bad actors and actresses who try to move ahead fraudulently. I do think it has unexpected consequences in that uh, the industry as a whole has become shy of caring for certain people that maybe they would have previously reputable organizations wanting to do the right thing sometimes pause, take a double look and, and say, well, maybe not, right? Because of the fear of the regulatory. And, and when you have a governmental agency that subcontracts people to go in and kind of just say clean up an industry, if you will, and they are incentivized perhaps by the wrong reasons financially, it can lead to a skewed perception. And certainly when people are acting as regulators and they are not fluent in what care delivery is and certainly don't understand uh, to the same extent that most providers do, disease, these trajectories, you know, and all of these other things that we deal with every day, there can be some unintended consequences. And then I think you and I have talked about off the podcast circuit previously that I feel very strongly that everybody in, in medicine should be held accountable from a regulatory perspective. And if a hospice organization or me as a hospice physician is, is under scrutiny for doing or not doing something that may be defined as fraud by another entity, I think the same needs to apply to, to all my colleagues. If someone has, just for example, you know, widely metastatic pancreatic cancer and, and a performance functional level of 10 to 20%. We have so much data that suggests that this individual has got a very limited life expectancy. And experientially, individuals like this tend to not have good outcomes when inundated with clinical interventions, whether it's chemo, radiation, surgery, et cetera. So to not share that data and that reality and, and I'll say inevitability up front right, with the individual and empower them with other choices, you know, that raises hair on my neck. I don't think it's intentionally fraudulent, but a lot of colleagues are not held accountable for massive interventions of people that are never going to benefit from them. And I guess I'm a little outspoken when it comes to this particular issue and I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that. No, no, that makes sense. Thank you. Talk, you know, just maybe just generally, what what are some of the the other factors that you think will shape the hospice space during 2022? I think two significant factors <clears throat> that we've already experienced, but they are more than likely to have continued negative effects. One is staffing shortage. Prior to the 
vaccination mandate, everybody was really, really short staffed. Sans some of your larger or, or really financially well supported hospice organizations through private equity and, and this and, and that nature, most organizations can't compete for nurses at the, you know, hourly rate and hiring bonuses that are being offered by those really financially well-off hospice organizations or even acute care facilities, the hospital systems. So I think nursing shortage, as well as all the ancillary staff, is going to continue to be significant. And it changed again, right, with the immunization mandate. You know, a lot of organizations lost another 3 to 5% of their staff. So I think staffing and I think burnout, you know, we've already seen not just frontline workers, LPNs, nurses, nurse practitioners, we're even seeing physicians now. So you know what, I'm, I, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'm exhausted. I think the, the burnout is going to fuel staffing shortages as well. I think those are the two most significant things we're going to be dealing with in the near future because of the pandemic. And uh, so I, one thing I want to close on, you know, another key issue during the past two years uh, and, and what should have been a lot longer than that is, is a drive towards greater diversity, equity and inclusion for underserved populations, as well as well as helping more people to understand what hospice and palliative care actually are. Uh, do you see the needle moving on these issues? I do. And I love the question. And I love where the space is going, not just in hospice, right? But we see a lot of energy across all sectors of industry and and academia. For me, and, and we've talked about this, regardless of your background, regardless of your orientation, ethnicity, end of life is a human journey. And it is a great equalizer. And everyone should have the opportunity to write the last chapter of their lives according to what is sacred to them as best as possible. And that is the integration and application of good end-of-life hospice services. But you're absolutely right. It has to start with education and empowerment. Most people don't know what it is. And there's such ignorance and fear and bias, which is almost paralytic. Oh, hospice is death. Hospice is going to steal time. You know, uh, if we've even heard of hospice before, uh, there's so many cultural boundaries, I think, that the industry has put up. We need to work very, very hard as hospice providers to understand what we know, understand what we don't know, recognize the difference between the two with respect to these issues, and solicit individuals who can help us bridge this chasm. I think that's the first step. The second step is as the larger system of healthcare recognizes and starts to accept, support, and apply quality end of life care, they need to support these efforts as well. You know, because it can't just be me standing on a peach crate at the, at the farmer's market, you know, saying hospice palliative care, you know, equity for all. That just doesn't do it. It's going to be a concerted, united effort because uh, it's a human issue. And we all deserve quality care throughout all our lives. And, and most certainly during the, this most vulnerable, sacred, sacred time of our lives, the, the last few chapters. Excellent. Well, again, Tim, it's always great to speak with you. I really appreciate you taking, taking the time to talk today. And uh, I, I hope that you, that you take care and continue to do well. 
Thank you, Jim. I always appreciate the opportunity and you as well. Thank you.